It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Episode 539 with Dr. Morris Isserman. As we just discussed, author of The Winter Army. About uh, the... What would you read? The title, The Winter Army, The World War II Odyssey of the 10th Mountain Division, America's Elite Alpine Warriors which is on Audible. I will put it in the description as always, and as everyone knows, I only have on authors of books that I enjoy. So if it's on here, it's because I like it, but because I like the sound of my own voice more than I like breathing, introduce yourself before I go off. I'm sorry, you're asking me to do what? Oh, sorry. Introduce yourself, please, for all the listeners. Okay, I'm Morris Isserman. I'm a professor of history at Hamilton College, where I teach American history, uh, including the history of the Second World War, which is the subject of uh, the Winter Army. For the 10th Mountain Division, there was one thing that kind of stuck out to me, and it was it was just the line, right? It's kind of along same same thing along the lines of the, the CIA Special Activities Division. It's easier to turn a soldier into a spy than a spy into a soldier, which is, you know, why they recruit from Delta Force or DevGrew. When you said, you know, the line in the book is it's easier to turn a, uh, a skier into a soldier as opposed to a soldier into a skier. Or excuse me, turn a, yeah, right? No, skier into a soldier, not a soldier into a skier. Is, but then you go on later in the book and they kind of talk about just how little they use their skis. Was... Was that ever kind of addressed or did they just do all this training and then, you know, first contact with the enemy and they just they just kind of throw it out the window? Well, the um, line that you refer to was in a letter to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, president of the United States, from a guy named Charles Minnie Dole, um, who um, Minnie was his, his nickname, Charles Minot Dole, who was, among other things, the founder of National Ski Patrol in the 1930s, who was not a soldier. He served very briefly in the First World War as a, a student. Um, he, he'd left Yale to, to join the um, American Army, but the war was over before he even began his, his training. Um, but he did have a vision of mountain troops um, that the Army eventually signed on to. First, they were kind of resistance resistant to the idea. Uh, the U.S. Army was a, a, a flatland uh, operation, uh, even a tropical operation, in the sense that most of its bases uh, in the years leading up to the Second World War were in places like Hawaii, the Philippines, the Caribbean, um, southern states, uh, where you could train year-round, uh, and so forth. It had a small detachment in Alaska, um, but it hadn't updated its cold weather um, uh, handbook since 1917 or so. Uh, it really didn't understand mountain warfare, um, and it never really practiced it. The United States had never fought a battle on a real mountain, a snow, snowy mountain. However, in Europe, uh, you have Germany and Austria and Italy and France, and their national borders, uh, in part, run along the ridgelines of the Alps, so they all had alpine troops. And they had considerable experience uh, in uh, high altitude and cold weather fighting. And Minnie Dole and his civilian friends one day skiing in Vermont in 1940 and talking about the, um, the war that was then raging, now forgotten, between Finland and the Soviet Union, in which the Soviet Union invaded Finland, uh, hoping to secure the approaches to Leningrad. That didn't work out very well. They did defeat uh, Finland, but at considerable cost. And the Finns relied upon their well-trained um, ski troops to kind of uh, zoom in from snowy woods on Soviet columns, which were uh, confined to uh, in these existing road system. So Minnie Dole and his friends said, you know, if we're going to go to war in Europe, and this is the spring of... 1940, late winter of 1940. Uh, so they were looking ahead and um, most of the country was still isolationist, but they didn't believe that was gonna be a very viable path. 
Uh, and so they set about convincing, Minnie Dole in particular, uh, convincing President Roosevelt and the War Department um, uh, and the military establishment that um, uh, ski troops were going to be a necessity. And so Minnie Dole's um, uh, line about uh, turning uh, skiers into soldiers rather than soldiers into skiers is that um, skiing is a, a pretty specialized um, skill. You don't pick it up overnight. Um, and moreover, you want people uh, in your alpine or mountain division who are used to an outdoor life. They don't necessarily have to be skiers, but they could be mountaineers, they could be uh, forest rangers, they could be trappers. Uh, and so his vision was let's recruit among that pool that's already there. Um, uh, rather than recruiting more generally. Um, and uh, of course, that pool was kind of shallow in the early 1940s because not that many Americans skied. It was not yet a mass participation sport. The uh, first uh, ski resorts with uh, ski lifts, chairs, so forth, uh, were only opening up in the late 1930s. Most of the people who skied in the United States in the late 1930s tended to be either current college or university students or recently graduated uh, university and college student, uh, university and college students who came from places with ski teams. Dartmouth, for example. Dartmouth sent 116 recruits into the 10th Mountain Division, plus their ski coach, the Swiss-born um, ski champion, Walter Prager, yeah. college in Massachusetts, the University of Oregon, University of Washington, University of Colorado, uh, places that were near mountains, places that you know were in cold climates, or where the, at least part of the part of the year was a cold climate, uh, and people who had already acquired some of the basic skills they were going to need if uh, they were going to be mountain troops or alpine troops. And one of the unique things about the 10th Mountain Division is that these new recruits, even before they'd mastered you know, the basics of saluting uh, firearms, uh, military courtesy, uh, and so forth, were already conducting classes. They became the ski instructors. You know, if you've been a, uh, uh, the captain of the Dartmouth ski team, um, you know a lot that, that your NCOs and your officers don't know because uh, they tended to come from the regular army, uh, at, at least at the beginning. Later, they would be promoted from within. But the, but the initial uh, cadre, in, in military terms, uh, tended to be from that, that tropical army of the pre-war era. And so you have these 18, 19-year-old kids, uh, brand new to, to the army, who are instructing their 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 top sergeants and their their lieutenants and their captains and their colonels how to do the basic thing they're going to need to do if they're going to uh, lead a um, mountain division into combat. I thought it was uh was kind of funny. I was listening through the book again, and I was up visiting my uh, my family in New Hampshire, which is where I'm from, which my my dad's from, and uh, where my parents moved. Excuse me. A lot of 10th guys came from New Hampshire. Well, I thought it was fast because I remember, I mean, ever since I was little going up and visiting and because we moved away, but we'd always go back and, you know, Burl in New Hampshire, you go up and, you, you know, there's Mount Washington. And I mean, that's the tallest, that's the tallest mountain I'd ever seen. And then you have the line from the book, the guy comes over and they bring him up and they're like, there are the mountains. Or no, sorry, like there's Mount Washington. And he's like, but where are the mountains? Sort of like where are the, okay, these are like, all right, these are hills, but it's like it's like bringing someone from Manhattan to like Podunk, Georgia, and being like, "Here's downtown," and being like, "Well, what do you mean? Where's where's the skyline? This is the skyline." Yeah, that's the Austrian ski instructor Hannes Schneider, yeah. who had basically invented modern ski instruction in Austria in the interwar years. He had been a mountain soldier himself uh, in the First World War, and he came over as a refugee from Austria when Austria was annexed by Nazi Germany because he was uh, anti-Nazi. It was only because he had friends in the United States they were able to spring him uh, shortly before uh, the war began. Uh, so, yeah, um, people who were skiing in New England were skiing on a different dimension mountain than uh, those
those in Europe, but also those who learned how to ski in Colorado and 14,000 peak uh, foot peaks and uh, in the Pacific uh, Northwest. So there was quite, quite a range. Um, you asked earlier about uh, one of the ironies of the 10th Mountain Division is that um, they train to fight on skis, um, famously. Uh, they uh, would ski with 90-pound rucksacks and their helmets on and a rifle slung over their back. And with that much weight on your back, anybody who's a skier knows if you fall, it's really hard to get up. Uh, but, you know, they were very well trained as skiers. The very best place to learn how to ski in the world in, say, 1943, 1944, uh, was at Camp Hale um, near Leadville, uh, high up in the Colorado Rockies, where the Army established uh, Camp Hale specifically as a training ground for the 10th uh, Mountain Division. And so they skied and skied and skied. And on the weekends, when they got weekend passes, they went to places like Aspen, not the Aspen of today, but it did have a tow rope, uh, and they skied some more. So, you know, they skied when they were training and they skied when they were recreating and, and so forth. These were really good skiers and their instructors were the best in the world. I mentioned Walter Prager. Uh, he was one of some 500 European refugees uh, from Austria and Germany, uh, France, uh, Norway, uh, from Switzerland, not that not they weren't refugees from Switzerland, but you know all these guys who uh, were the best skiers in the world and were training now this next American generation uh, to uh, follow in their ski tracks, as it were. So, so they 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 got a lot out of that. Uh, one of the things they got was a real sense of esprit de corps. Um, you know, they they thought of themselves as an elite unit, just like. Um, Airborne, mm -hmm. no airborne divisions at the start of World War II uh, founded them and, and had to train them quickly uh, because the Germans had had airborne, um, and uh, they they were all volunteers. Uh, and similarly, all the guys in the 10th Mountain Division at first were volunteers. You had to actually apply, and interestingly, you had to apply through the National Ski Patrol, a civilian agency, not a government agency, not a military agency. Uh, and it was like applying to college. So you sent in three letters of recommendation from your ski coach or uh, somebody you'd skied with or, or whatever, saying, yeah, this guy knows how to ski or he knows how to climb mountains or you know, he's an all-round outdoor athlete. And then the National Ski Patrol, you know, checked your box or they didn't and sent your application on to, uh, to the Army. And then you were shipped out if you were accepted to uh, Camp Hale. So they, they thought of themselves like airborne as a um, an elite unit. I mean, the difference with airborne, I think, is interesting, too, which is very few, a, a tiny proportion of people who joined the 82nd Airborne or the 101st Airborne had ever jumped out of an airplane. Yeah. Before, or even been in an airplane in most cases because people didn't fly in those days. Uh, but these guys, you know, again, they, they knew their specialty before they knew their basic training, uh, which was a, a different kind of experience. So anyway, they got um, um, a lot of uh, uh, morale building out of, out of being this. And, and, you know, they had uh, special patches and, and um, so forth. Uh, all things that went with being an elite unit. Um, and they were very fit. Uh, you know, I mean, how do you train to be a soldier? Well, you can train as as the men of the tent did by, you know, <coughs> crawling along the ground while they fire machine guns over your head uh, and doing calisthenics. They also did that. Um, but why not ski? Why not climb mountains? Uh, they got a kind of all-round uh, physical training from um, from learning their specialty or, or perfecting their, their specialty as uh, ski troopers. Um, what they didn't get was um, a skill that was very useful in combat. As they discovered when they finally got over uh, to Italy, here they are training at um, 10,000, 14,000 feet sometimes, in uh, deep powder snow, which you get in the Rockies at those altitudes. Um, and then they're going to fight at three or 4,000 feet in the northern Apennines. 
Now, you're from New Hampshire. You know what corn snow is, uh, and you know what it sounds like. Corn snow is, is snow that that isn't deep powder uh, because it melts and it refreezes and it melts again. And, it and so when you are sneaking up on the enemy theoretically, you know, you're pretending to do this at Camp Hill and you're going through the, the powder snow and your skis are going, shh, shh, shh. It's very quiet. When you're trying to do the same thing at 4,000 feet, you know, in the White Mountains or in the northern Apennines, your skis are going scritch, scritch, scritch. So the, first of all, the army in, in, in its wisdom didn't send their skis to Italy. They had to scrounge up some skis and not nearly as many as they would have liked. Didn't send their warm sleeping bags either. They, you know, in Camp Hale, they slept very well at 14,000 feet in, in these new down uh, sleeping bags, which are just being developed. Uh, in Italy, they slept very poorly in wool blankets and shivered all night long. They were bitter about that. Um, but when they got out on skis on those first patrols, um, so they were up in the front lines, uh, but they um, uh, weren't in, in full combat yet. But then, you know, they were going to take prisoners or they're going to scout out en enemy outposts or whatever. There they go on their skis going, scritch, 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 scritch. And the Germans don't even have to see them. You know, it could be pitch black. It's the middle of the night. There's no moon. They just fire towards the sound. And so they quickly, you know, abandoned the skis and, and, and never uh, used them again. They did use their mountain climbing skills in their most famous um, assault on Riva Ridge, a three to 4,000 foot high ridge. We can talk about that more uh, in a bit. And, and so that, that training uh, proved valuable. Uh, the, the skiing was valuable, but for other reasons, uh, not applicable to the kind of combat that they faced in Italy. It's, yeah, right. It's, it's go over there and it doesn't survive contact with the enemy. But then there's, I thought there's the interesting aspect of, you know, they see the, you know, is it yet yeah, in Finland? It's, you know, they, they almost kind of like a revolutionary war, right? It's like the lumbering columns. That was not actually how the Revolutionary War was fought, as you know. The Continental Army certainly used uh, European regular military tactics and fought out of the open in lines. But there's always, you know, Dan Morgan's Pennsylvanians hiding behind trees at Saratoga and, and picking off the British officers. So there, there is some some comparison there. Um, however, here's the thing about Finland. In Finland, uh, they were fighting on something called the Karelian Isthmus, which was not mountainous. Um, it was heavily wooded. It was it's cold. It's Finland. Uh, it was snowy, uh, but they weren't going up and down mountains. They were they were you know coming down um, riverbeds or you know other paths uh, through the, through the woods, um, launching their lightning assaults and then dashing back into the woods where the Soviets couldn't follow them. Uh, so it really wasn't that good a model for um, the kind of challenges. Um, you were going to face in um, uh, fighting in, in mountains like uh, the Alps or the Northern Apennines. Now, the other thing is that, you know, they were training in Colorado, uh, again, up to 14,000 feet. Um, but in mountain warfare, you don't capture mountain tops generally, certainly not 14,000 feet mountain tops. What you capture are mountain passes. The passes through the mountains through which reinforcements and supplies uh, can flow, like the Brenner Pass, which leads from Austria into uh, northern uh, Italy. And their 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 ultimate goal was to reach the Brenner Pass, which they did. But the Brenner Pass is, is uh, about 4,000 feet in elevation. So again, in, uh, training at, at 14,000 feet, where, among other things, you're out of breath until you've acclimatized, uh, was really good fitness training, uh, but it wasn't specific to the kind of combat that they uh, wound up doing. It's got to make you think, and um, just side note, sometimes this happens with guests. I've, I find when I'm talking, your microphone mutes, so if, 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 if you see me confused, that's why. With, you know, they originally discussed what if the Germans came down from Canada or something, and it's... And then we look at the applicability of what they learned at Camp Hale, right, versus how it doesn't apply to Italy. You've almost got to imagine if it's if they bifurcated it at some point, maybe after the war, I don't know. But do you have like a do you have your own guys that are trained just for the American uh, conditions uh, if there ever is an invasion of us as opposed to us having to go overseas and fight? I wonder 
if, is there a National Guard aspect that it is they are for New England for Colorado for on the just because it seems like they have a war plan for everything as opposed to you know Italy I don't know how serious um, Minnie Dole and his friends took that threat of the Germans you know uh, this is the spring of 1940 it's right before the Blitzkrieg it's before the Battle of Britain um, you would have to assume a the fall of Britain and then an, a successful invasion by the Germans of Canada, uh, which they certainly didn't have the Navy for, um, uh, or ability to project their, their power across the Atlantic. I mean, again, it's easy to say that in retrospect, um, but even if they got to Canada, you know, the idea of invading in winter down the Champlain Valley uh, into New England um, you're going to be pretty far from your your line of communication is going to be uh, stretching all the way back, not just to Montreal, uh, but uh, back to Britain or back to the European continent. And, and uh, as the British found in the American Revolution, that was a pretty long supply line. Um, so I think the argument was kind of crafted, I don't know how deliberately, but to appeal to military authorities in a time when most Americans were isolationists. If you could present this as a defensive measure uh, protecting North America uh, at a time when many Americans were saying America first, um, uh, then you had a better chance of selling it as opposed to saying, oh, yeah, well, we're probably going to be fighting in the Alps in a year or so. So let's let's develop this unit. You know, the B-17, for example, was not initially um, imagined or at least sold um, as uh, a um, long-range bomber uh, from Britain to uh, occupied Europe, I mean, it's developed in the late 1930s. The notion or you know, the appeal was, okay, these things are gonna fly up and down the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States, and they're gonna bomb um, German or Japanese or whoever's battleships as they approach uh, the coast. Remember Billy Mitchell and the proving that you could sink a battleship from uh, from the air. That that was the 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 way uh, the program was sold. The way it was used was, of course, totally different. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's insane. It's yeah. Well, as you say, you know, these things develop over time. And they it's uh, it's good that they were adaptable. Yeah. It's good, you know, with the wrong idea of what a B-17 was useful for, got them into production, into design, and improved them, uh, so that in 1941, we had some. Yeah, right, like A-10 Warthog meant for Soviet tank columns if they tried to take Europe, versus it's like, actually, you're going to be hitting Taliban tents in Afghanistan. Like, what? Yeah. yeah. Example. It's... um. You have to wonder, and this is more speculation, uh, I guess more deviating from the book, you have to wonder what other examples of things did we look at what, what, what the Finns did. It's like we have to be able to fight in that same aspect, yet we we so clearly uh, seem to bungle, is that the right word, Vietnam, or even we're seeing now in the Middle East, an inability to adapt uh, or we do adapt, but it's at great cost, and it's also and often right. We go into the Middle East, and it's we got Humvees, and you got to take ten years, and then we get these lumbering MRAPs, or you know those. The, I was just watching a documentary last night on those M1 Abrams that they kind of turned into the assault breach vehicles. They've got like spikes and skis, and they clear mines. Do we do we have to wait for a war to break out to go? We need to start adapting to that situation. Is it too expensive to try to adapt to every potential situation at every given time? Like, do we need to adapt to a, a mountain warfare if there doesn't seem to be any mountain warfare geography in the future, if that makes sense? Uh, that's a big question. I'm yeah. not sure I'm, I'm qualified to give you a, a broad answer. Um, just a note on Afghanistan, uh, the 10th Mountain Division was disbanded in uh, November 1945. Uh, it was reconstituted as 10th Mountain Division Light Infantry in um, 1983 and 1984. And ever since then, it has been the uh, most deployed unit 
in uh, the U.S. Army. Their main base is not far from where I'm sitting here in upstate New York uh, at Fort Drum in Watertown near the Canadian border. And um, they they actually turned out to be very well, they're deployed so often because they're, they're very well suited for um, the kind of fighting, which is often on very rugged terrain, uh, sometimes at, at highish altitudes um, in the cold. Uh, they don't ski into battle. Uh, they use helicopters to protect themselves. But but the, um, they are particularly well suited for the kinds of places Afghanistan and Iraq uh, that the United States has found itself in combat um, in in recent decades. Bosnia before that. Um, but what the United States, the kind of wars the United States fights well, are wars like. Um, World War II, uh, where uh, an advantage in firepower and uh, industrial production uh, and the American tactic of going after the main force of the enemy derived, you know, not from General Patton. Uh, he learned it from at West Point, where it was taught uh, ever since the Civil War. General Grant, you know, you're not here to capture cities. You're here to attack General Lee's army. Uh, and that was the the attitude that uh, the United States brought into the Second World War, which once it built up sufficient force in, in Britain, um, proved the winning strategy. Um, you know, we can talk about what went right and what went wrong in Afghanistan, but fighting decades-long counterinsurgencies um, uh, is not what the United States does best. And Vietnam, also a classic instance of that. So, I mean, the 10th to be the right right unit for the right assignment, particularly in um, the mountainous terrain of northern Italy where they were assigned. Um, one of the things they, they did learn how to do uh, in their training in Colorado, which was also useful in Italy, was how to use mules to transport uh, weapons and supplies to carry out wounded uh, because they're Places you can't get a Sherman tank and you can't get a, you know, a, a, a truck or a Jeep up, but you can get a mule up. Um, uh, so that part of their training was also relevant to what they encountered in, in Italy. You gave a great example of the ability of of uh, the U.S. government or the military forces to to adapt and to uh, apply those adaptions in time of war. And it's the entire setting up of the camp from straightening out the roads to, you know, bussing in all the people and, and making the area, you know, suitable for training. And then also there's this sort of like crash course on learning. I mean, if I could use an analogy with this podcast, first episodes were on a laptop above my parents' garage in a big room that echoed. Fast forward 500 episodes and it's completely shifted. But you talk about the the hail hack, right? Altitude sickness. Ando hack, right? Yeah, oh, what was it? Ando was yeah. a, a road station up there in the Eagle Valley, um, in the Rockies, in, in um, at about nine thousand feet. Yeah, so they 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 built this camp in record time uh, from scratch. There was nothing there except for a railroad line, which is why they said, okay, it's in the mountains, and get a railroad up there, get trains up there for supplies, and bring the recruits in, and so forth. But this is a good place to build it, and it has access to much higher mountains. You know, you climb for a day, and you're up at 14,000 feet. So all that was to good, the good. The thing they didn't count on was that they were in a high uh, alpine valley, uh, protected on um, three sides from uh, prevailing winds uh, by these, these rock walls that rose up uh, from the valley floor. And that meant that... Um, you know, it's been a pristine valley, but when you start sending three or four trains up there today, and they're, they're burning soft coal, um, and you have um, uh, all these coal stoves uh, turning out heat through through the winter uh, in, in in the barracks and the, and the other uh, buildings at Camp Hale, what you soon get is it looks like a 19th century British industrial city. You get this pall of black smoke up above, which is continually sort of blackening the snow below and blackening the lungs of the soldiers who are training at Camp Hale. So you're coming up, you know, let's say you're from the Midwest, 
you're already got it. By the time you get by train to Denver, you're a mile high. You already have a headache. And then you go, you know, another 4,000 feet elevation in the same day or later the same day up to Camp Hale. You're already feeling pretty crappy. Um, and, uh, and then you add on to that the fact that, you know, you're breathing in this polluted air. And so uh, people uh, soon developed uh, uh, sore throats, uh, deep chest coughs, bronchial coughs, their, their lips dried and, and split. Uh, so, you know, for the first couple of weeks, you're there until you adjust, your body adjusts, uh, you're pretty miserable. And, and um, some of the men never adjusted. They had to be moved to lower elevations and maybe then they could be brought back. But, you know, some of them just couldn't, couldn't uh, put up with it. So it was called uh, the Pando hack because, you know, almost everybody had it in the, the first weeks of training. Not a good introduction to the Army. It seems fitting, though. It was... Um... Was was it ever uh, you, you? There was just a brief mention of it in the book, but I was wondering if you're aware of if there was ever any growth off this aspect of using uh, what was it using artillery to induce an avalanche? Yeah, that was a really bad idea. Only <laughs> use artillery to induce an avalanche, but um, you can't necessarily, uh, and they still do actually in in, in the, the high mountains. Uh, but unless you're an expert on avalanche, which, you know, the officers who were ordering these things, you can't necessarily say how big an avalanche it's going to be or, you know, where it's going to wind up. And so they almost wound up uh, the first time they tried this, wiping out, you know, their own their own camp up in the mountains. Uh, they certainly didn't use it in, in Italy, and, and they didn't have the snowpack in Italy to need to use it. You know, there were a couple of feet of snow. Could you go more into the uh, – it, it almost seems to be a timeless tale. Uh, well, I guess I'm kind of defeating my own purpose because I couldn't name a modern example. But the writing of the articles about like, oh, these guys are elite. They're from Harvard and that's – Yeah, I mean they didn't court that kind of um, coverage, but they certainly got it. Uh, they became media darlings. Uh, celebrated for, you know, their education, educated backgrounds, uh, as well as for their, you know, their, their all-around outdoor skills. Uh, Hollywood made a movie, which I've fortunately suppressed the memory of it. It was such a terrible movie, but part of it was shot at Camp Hale. It had real soldiers <coughs> doing fancy ski maneuvers in it. I mean, the skiing aspect of it, too, um, you know, drew this kind of, uh, adulatory media coverage. Even when they were in Europe, um, the army magazine Yank, uh, which was um, you know kind of the life magazine for the soldiers in Europe, uh, did a feature story on the tenth um, after their their first big victories at Reaver Ridge and Mount Belvedere in uh, February of nineteen forty five. And they wrote about, oh, these wonderful guys. And, you know, the, the sergeant is saying, you know, half of my platoon is made up of Princeton grads. And they got a barrage of angry letters, justifiably angry letters. I mean, it wasn't the tenth fault. But, you know, these guys have been fighting in um, Italy, which was a miserable war to fight since Salerno in 1943, Anzio, 1944, uh, Monte Cassino in uh, 43, 44, and they said, you know, these guys, the Germans don't, aren't going to look at your bachelor's degree or your PhD. You know, they want to know if you can fight, and, and maybe these guys can do it or not. But we're the we're the real heroes here. We've been here much longer, and you know, the tenth guys were embarrassed. They said by by that kind of um, coverage. One of the aspects, though, of um, they were a pretty well-educated bunch. Uh, the Army gave a standard intelligence test, and you had to score. I don't remember the score you had to get. But if you scored above a certain level, um, you were considered a candidate for officer candidate school. You know, you could go off and train to be a second lieutenant. And in a typical division, something like 10% of uh, the division recruits would score at that level, where they could be considered for that kind of uh, training as an officer. In um, the 10th Mountain Division, it was more like, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's more like 30 or 40% uh, who, who um, 
trained, and you can question, you know, those intelligence tests. And these guys with college training, I mean, they'd taken a lot of tests. Uh, but, you know, they had a very high proportion uh, who were seen as officer material, but not very many of them took advantage of it because um, a division, about 15,000 men, can only use so many second lieutenants. And what they feared was they'd go off to Fort Benning, uh, which was center for officer training, um, get their second lieutenant bars, and then they'd be sent to some flatland division. They wanted to come back to fight with their own, with the 10th. Uh, in fact, the first person I met um, who was a 10th Mountain veteran was my colleague here at Hamilton College, um, Don Potter, uh, who was, I, I got here in 1990, I was a young uh, instructor then, and he was near his emeritus, he was about to retire, uh, but he was a great guy, uh, was kind of a, a self-appointed uh, mentor to younger faculty like myself. He taught geology, I taught history, not wasn't in my field, but, and we also shared outdoor interests. And he told me a lot about his 10th experience, not the combat part, which he didn't even tell his family, uh, but the training in, at um, uh, Camp Hale. And he uh, was one of the people who did go off to Benning. Uh, he decided to risk it. Uh, and so through the summer and early fall of 1944, he was training at Benning. And then he came um, back uh, just before the 10th left for um, uh, Italy. So he, he rolled the dice and it worked out for him. But what it meant was you had all these other guys uh, just as well qualified as Don uh, to become officers who you know, served the, out the war as uh, privates or corporals or sergeants. You had very, very, very well qualified non-commissioned officers uh, in all kinds of ways. Uh, as a result. Don, by the way, had been, I was talking about their educational background. He had grown up um, near where I'm teaching uh, at Hamilton College. He had grown up in uh, Saranac Lake in the Adirondacks um, and then went to Williams College in Western Massachusetts where he was on the Williams College ski team. Uh, but in the um, spring of 1943, uh, dropped out to um, uh, joined the 10th, as many of his teammates did as well. You talked about towards the end how a lot of them, believe, or they were gearing up to go be part of the mainland invasion of Japan. Right. It, it, it There's kind of an, just like the lack of the skis, there's sort of this, uh, this ironic uh, full circle you know, we're all, we have a tropic army, we need a mountain army, and then you take the mountain army, and you're like, let's go invade, you know, the Pacific Island hopping campaign, and it's, it's, it's just this kind of ironic full circle, I mean, granted, there are mountains in Japan, was that based on we just needed every body, or did they have, did this, did the 10th mountain have a specific uh, lethal edge, or tactical advantage that they would be part of it, or was it just, we're throwing everyone? Yeah, uh, well, just to back up a little bit, um, they didn't know where they were going to be assigned. And one rumor while they were doing their training in the U.S. was that they would be sent to Burma, uh, where you do have mountainous terrain. It's not cold, uh, but um, it's very rugged terrain. And, of course, they all hoped that they wouldn't be sent there. I mean, I think any American soldier in World War II, given the choice of fighting in Europe or fighting against the Japanese in the Pacific, would have said, uh, I think I'll go to Europe. Uh, Norway was another possibility. The Germans had occupied Norway, and obviously they had mountains and it was cold. Um, so when they got on the boats in December of um, 1944, the Battle of the Bulge was just breaking out. And some of them thought they were just going to be deployed, you know, in Belgium, plug, used to plug the hole. Uh, but Italy was certainly the right place for them. But after that, yeah, you know, the... Uh, if you've seen Band of Brothers and the, you know, the, the final episode where the war in Europe is over, but the war in Japan is still going on. And these guys don't have enough points to go home. You got so many points for how many uh, months you'd spent overseas and medals you'd received and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and most of the guys in the 101st Airborne um, expected they were going to be sent to fight in Japan, which, you know, considering the casualties they had taken, uh, 
was, you know, not many of them thought they were going to come back home to the U.S. Similarly with um, the 10th, they took heavy casualties, uh, especially given the, they were in combat for three months, uh, but they lost 1,000 dead. They had 5,000 wounded um, out of 15,000 men. Um, some, of the, some, of the, some of those killed and wounded were replacements, of course. Um, and they, didn't have, they hadn't been overseas very long at all. So when they um, boarded troop ships in Naples in early August of, uh, or end of July, 1945, they, they'd won their war in Italy, uh, but they thought they were coming back to the U.S., they were going to be sent back to Camp Hale, they were going to refit, retrain, fill out their ranks with new recruits, and they, and they were going to go off to Japan. That was, in fact, they had no way of knowing this. It's exactly what their orders specified. But uh, I think one of the first troop ships carrying the veterans of the 10th into New York Harbor arrived on August 6th, which was the day that the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. And suddenly um, they realized, you know, they weren't going to die as young men. They, they you know, they were going to see their, their, their wives or in many cases their sweethearts uh, and actually get married and have families and, you know, live their lives. So um, you can imagine the kind of emotional turnaround that represented for them when they found out that they weren't, in fact, um, heading off to the Pacific Theater. You know, that's something that's still debated to today. You know, should we have nuked? Personally, I I, I can only hold one opinion because my dad's dad was going to be part of the mainland invasion and I wouldn't be here. So, you know, he, he would have been a cannon fodder. So I, I can't hold any other opinion than we should have used them. And and obviously spiral off and do we have to do it? Could we detonate it up? But I'll, it's very easy to talk in hindsight. There's one line. It's a complicated question. There. In reality, if we're going to talk about a moral line being crossed, that line had been crossed a long time earlier by, by Britain, by the United States, uh, in the bombings, uh, in, in Europe. I mean, Dresden, Dresden, Hamburg, you know, 40,000 people died in Hamburg in an incendiary attack by the Royal Air Force. The United States wasn't doing that yet. We were still kind of clinging to this notion of precision bombing. So we bombed in daytime. The Royal Air Force said, that's not going to work. So they just bombed at night. But you can't really see your target at night. But if you drop incendiaries, you can see your target. So, you know, when you're prepared to kill 40,000 Germans, most of them civilians, uh, in Hamburg, 25,000 Germans, most of them civilians, in Dresden, you're not going to spend a lot of time thinking about killing Japanese civilians. Um, if it was right, then it was right all along. If it was wrong, then it was wrong all along. But it's not specific to the atomic bomb. 1,000, no, I'm sorry, 500 B-29s uh, flew over Tokyo on March 6th, 7th, 1945, and dropped incendiaries on Tokyo. 100,000 people died horribly. Again, most of them civilians. On August 6th, one B-29 flew over Hiroshima, dropped a bomb, and 100,000 people died. And more later because of lingering effects of radiation. But where's the moral difference? You know, same casualties, same character of warfare. I mean, it feels different because... You know, the destructive capacity of an atomic bomb is so much greater than a, a conventional bomb or an incendiary bomb. Um, but really, again, that line had been crossed earlier. Uh, I, I agree 100%. And it's very easy in 2021 in an air-conditioned room and a leather couch, you know, or a chair talking, you know, it's very easy for us to armchair, we should or shouldn't have done this. When there's 85 million dead, including civilians, when you're finding concentration camps, when, when Americans, they're finding Americans with their eyes gouged out and their genitals chopped off and put in their mouths, and you're on these island-hopping campaigns... Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing the SS. Say what you will about Bill O'Reilly. I don't care. He has a great ghostwriter. Killing the SS. One of the lines, and you just brought it up, is when they found out about the atomic bombings, a lot of the guys, their first initial thought was, we can start planning for more than the next 24 hours. Yeah. Well, I could say a lot about Bill O'Reilly, but I'll... <laughs> oh, yeah. Like I, I always say it. I say He has a great ghostwriter. Whoever his ghostwriter is writes great books. 
So um, anyway, back to the 10. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned several times that their signature battles, the battles that they're remembered for, uh, which were quite extraordinary military achievements, uh, were four or five days of fighting in middle, mid-late February of 1945. So they'd arrived in Naples at the end of December, the beginning of January, uh, done some uh, training and refitting, and then gone up into the mountains um, late January. They'd, they'd been in some firefights, but you know, they they had maybe a, a dozen or a score of, of casualties uh, or at least deaths at that point. Um, but on uh, starting on February 18th, um, they came into their own. They were sent to attack um, Riva Ridge, about a 4,000 foot ridge line, which uh, was separated by about a mile from a, a mountain massif, a, a massif for two or three mountains kind of jammed together with saddles between them. Um, called the Belvedere um, Massif. And the importance of uh, Belvedere was that it had uh, artillery and artillery spotters on it who could see the main road. There were very few roads uh, going through the Northern Apennines. The Northern Apennines separate um, the relatively lowland area around Florence down to Rome, uh, from uh, the Po Valley, Florence and Rome are to the south, the Po Valley, which includes Milan and Bologna, um, uh, and which is the industrial and uh, heartland and the agricultural breadbasket of Italy. Um, they're only about 20 miles apart, but you've got these mountains in the way, and you only got a couple of roads going through the mountains. So in order to break through the mountains, you had to capture the high ground, Belvedere. And the Americans had tried that uh, also some Brazilian troops who knew there were Brazilians uh, fighting on our side in Italy, but there were, there was a Brazilian division. They tried, they weren't mountain troops and they, they couldn't hold um, the mountain, Belvedere. Um, so the, the 10th mountain guys get there a few months later and um, their commander, uh, General uh, Hayes, uh, looks at, at Belvedere and then he looks over you know, a mile away at Riva Ridge, and he says, I see what the problem is. We have to capture Riva Ridge uh, because the Germans don't have artillery up there, but they have artillery spotters. And their artillery is on the far side of the ridge, and they can call in accurate gunfire, artillery fire, on anybody trying to capture Belvedere, the Belvedere Massif. And so the first thing we're going to do is, is take out Riva Ridge, which had never been attempted before. And Riva Ridge, there were only like 150 Germans on top at any one time. Um, but it, the side that faced it, and I've stood at the base of this uh, in the summer, uh, but the side that faced it uh, was uh, about a 3,000-foot rocky cliff. And, the German, and it was, there were no obvious ways up it. Uh, you know, there were some pathways that local farmers could find their way up. Uh, but uh, the Germans were so confident that no military unit, and Americans perhaps in particular, they didn't have great uh, respect for the Americans at that point. Um, they didn't bother to mine it. They didn't bother to patrol it. They didn't put up barbed wire on it. They just said, you know, they're never going to get up it. So what General Hayes it was he sent out scouts and these guys are trained in Camp Hale and they know about mountains. And they identified four, uh, four or five trails and actually eventually went up four of them. Uh, and on the night of, I think, February 18th, 19th, 1945, 700 soldiers who've never really been in combat before uh, in the pitch black in February go up icy narrow trails where you know, one of them fell and their firearm discharged or their helmet clattered, they bring the wrath of the Germans down on them. And they got to the top without alert, alerting the Germans. It took them hours to get up there. And then they, they swept away the German defenses um, at the cost of one man wounded. And the Germans being the Germans and being very good soldiers began counterattacking the next day and they counterattacked for four or five days and you know, they took casualties. But they, they, they did what it would have been very difficult for non-mountain troops to do um, as, as green troops. They went up as green troops, and by the end of the four or five days, uh, they were seasoned troops. And similarly, the next night, um, the rest of the division goes up Mount Belvedere, which is not as steep, 
um, it's if you're from New England, the comparison to Mount Monadnock might make sense. It's kind of the same shape, kind of gently sloped. Uh, but the Germans have have put in barbed wire and mines, and they have the the gullies uh, zeroed in with their machine guns and their mortars and their artillery. Uh, so that was a much bloodier affair. The army estimated it would take two weeks to capture uh, the Massif, and the 10th did it in four four days of hard fighting. And the Germans, again, they counterattacked. But, you know, if ever a, a an untrained unit uh, earned its distinction as being veterans, uh, it was in those four or five days of fighting in, in February of 1945. So the 10th, the rest of their history, maybe we're running out of time, but just briefly, they, you know, they fight their way all the way up to... Um, the foothills of the Alps, essentially. They cut off the German retreat uh, from Italy across the Brenner Pass into Austria. There was some fear that they put up a last-ditch um, defense in, in the Austrian Alps. And in all that time, uh, they never failed to take an objective, which they were assigned. Uh, they were never driven from an objective, which they had captured. They were the sharp end of the spear uh, of the American advance, uh, the British were coming up the eastern side of the mountains, the Americans on the west, um, out of the mountains into the Po Valley. So again, they're not they're not fighting in where they're trained to fight. They're they're doing amphibious river crossings. They don't have life jackets. They've never crossed a river because nobody thought mountain troops could need to cross a river. Uh, but they always took their objectives. So, so it was um, I think a, a really extraordinary um, unit that even if it didn't. Um, pl play quite the role or the mission that Minnie Dole and his ski, ski friends uh, imagined it playing way back in 1940. Uh, it certainly served uh, the Allied cause well. Um, real quick, so I, I aim for 45 minutes to an hour. We, we're more than, we can go over if you'd like. Um, and the other thing is kind of tying it back into the questioning of the atomic bombing. I mean, you talk about in your book these guys with PTSD for the rest of their life and, you know, having dreams where they can't make eye contact with their lost brothers. I mean, you look at that and you go, yeah, yeah, drop drop it. Get it over with. Yeah. I mean, the guy you refer to in particular, Marty Dainman, uh, who was not a mountaineer or not a skier. He came from Chicago. He had been a high school athlete. He was 18 years old when he went into the uh, the 10th. And he's a pretty major figure in the book because he wrote so many letters home uh, to his, mostly to his girlfriend and fiance Lois, who was, you know, a year younger than him. She was just a high school kid when he went off into the army. Uh, and um, uh, he wrote these wonderfully descriptive letters, which many of them did. Uh, they were smart guys, they were educated guys, their families held on to their letters, uh, which was not always the case. And so many of those letters, thousands of those letters, including hundreds by Marty Dainman, are in the Denver Public Library, in the, which is my main place I went to for research uh, in the 10th Mountain Division archives. Um, so I was very fond of Marty. I, I was in touch with his family, his sons, uh, uh, while I was writing the book. They sent me a wedding photo of Marty and Lois. <laughs> Marty got off the uh, uh, the troop ship in New York City, and uh, two weeks later, he's in Chicago. I mean, he's probably there even sooner. Two weeks later, he's in Chicago in his uniform, standing next to Lois in her wedding gown, uh, and they got married. So he was, you know, all of 20, and she was all of 19. He went on to have a very successful life. He was a businessman. Uh, he was, uh, I had four sons, uh, again, who I was in touch with. Uh, seems like, like a great guy. He wrote a memoir uh, of his time in the 10th, which was also very useful to me. Um, but he he did report these dreams that he had uh, of, of being on top of Mount Belvedere after the two days of fighting in which he, he killed men um, and, and uh, you know, he's, he wrote to Lois, I, I just turned 20, but I feel like I'm 30. Like that's old, but you know, at, at, when you're 20, it seems old. Um, and uh, later that on the third day, he and a friend of his went out onto the saddle between Mount Belvedere and Mount Gorgolesco, the next mountain in the, the massif, 
and they found the bodies of their two best friends from Camp Hill training days. And, and the bodies had swollen, as bodies do. And you see all those Civil War photos of swollen bodies in Gettysburg. Well, the same thing happens maybe a little slower in the cold in the mountaintops. And they had body bags with them, but they couldn't fit the bloated bodies into the body bags. And so they had to, just imagine, they had to um, insert their bayonets into their friends' bodies to release the gas so they could fit the bodies into the body bag. Um, so, you know, Marty came out and many of the 10th guys came out to live very successful lives thereafter, but, you know, they carried the burdens of combat. Um, which means, you know, you can draw many lessons from it, but one is we should be very careful before we send, you know, young men and now young women into those situations, especially where we may not have a very clear mission in mind to achieve. Uh, one final note on the 10th, and then I'll finish, but um, the 10th comes back, and they find uh, all those skis that didn't get sent overseas are now in army surplus stores. And, and, you know, the um, warm clothing and the sleeping bags and all the stuff they would have liked to have had. And um, thousands and thousands, millions of Americans are now uh, getting interested in winter recreation. And these guys basically invent the modern skiing and more broadly uh, winter recreation industry. They transform Aspen into the Aspen of today. Uh, they, uh, one of them... Um, uh, creates Vail. And today, if you go to Vail, uh, there's a statue of the 10th Mountain Trooper in the very center of the you know, little ski community there. Um, they're very well remembered in Colorado because of their importance of the 10th, but creating the ski industry there. In fact, you can buy 10th Mountain Division uh, specialized uh, auto plates, license plates. Uh, there, there's a 10th Mountain Division trail that uh, goes hut to hut through the Alps, uh, through the Alps, through the Rockies. Um, they're also very well remembered in, in your New Hampshire, in my upstate um, uh, New York. Uh, they they created ski resorts um, all over the country. They they founded um, Nike Shoes. Um, Bill Brower, who had been a Sierra Club climber in Yosemite of some note, uh, became the director of the Sierra Club after the war and transformed what had been an outdoor recreation group in California. It had about 10,000 members, but they were all in California, into you know, the country's leading uh, environmental group, you know, a, a national group. So these guys you know, were, were important in the war, and then they were um, important in um, the post-war. And uh, I was very glad to get to know some of them. Don Potter I got to know very well. Um, some of them I only met on my um, book tour. This, the book came out in 2019. And uh, the, some of the talks I gave in upstate New York, I had a guy come uh, to Utica where I was giving a talk at a local bookstore and uh, from nearby Remsen. And he was 102 years old. And, you know, he asked a good question or made a good statement. I mean, still pretty sharp. I went up and talked to Fort Trump to... Uh, Soldiers, some of whom were deploying for Afghanistan. This was fall 2019. Um, they're very interested in, in the old 10th and their ancestors in the 10th. But there was a 10th veteran there who was 95, local guy. Uh, in Colorado, I met a guy named Hugh Evans. Hugh Evans was the hero of taking of Mount Gorgolesco, which was the mountain next to um, Belvedere. He won a silver star. He led a single, just saw a friend of his dying and he was enraged and he, he said, follow me, men. And three or four of them amazingly did because they were attacking entrenched Germans on the very peak of the mountain. And uh, he and two or three others got on top and they killed 20 Germans. He took 10 prisoners when his, his machine gun was empty uh, and he got a silver star. He came to my talk in Boulder, Colorado, in the Boulder bookstore. And he was, you know, talking with everybody there. And it was a great honor to have someone like that uh, come. You know, these guys are, the youngest of them are 95. They're not going to be with us much longer, but um, I was glad, you know, to see the last veterans of the 10th. Well, I also think, you know, aside from it just being a good book, I also think you've, you've done a great thing in that it's, World War II is something that I don't think anyone can ever learn at all. And I, I'd like to think in all of my ego that I'm somewhat well-read 
and your book was you know a hundred percent new information but you're also you're also telling their stories and you know i think that's i think that's an admirable thing and it's at the very least make it known or make it available you know if they don't read it they don't read it but at least make it available make their sacrifices known and because you know there's something you know there's something sad about it being brushed away forever and not knowing about it so i think what you've what you've done is great and i want to thank you for that i think it's a fantastic book um before we wrap this up i was gonna say i had one one thought turning us uh skiers into soldiers it's got to make you think i wonder if they're doing that with something exotic today like wingsuits you know <laughs> if turn wingsuiters into are we going to learn about the you know the wingsuit division yeah, I think somebody in a wingsuit uh, would make an ideal target. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and just make an ideal crash landing. Yeah. And before we wrap this up, lastly, um, could you tell everyone your other books you've written? So This is my third um, mountaineering book. Uh, and I got interested in the history of the 10th through books I'd written earlier about uh, Himalayan mountaineering. I published a book in 2008 called uh, Fallen Giants, uh, co-authored with um, a friend and climbing partner, Stuart Weaver. And then a um, book that came out in 2016 uh, called Continental Divide, which is about American um, mountaineering. And in, in both of those books, people who would later show up in the 10th were important figures in the, in the 1930s. Uh, and so that, that, along with being friends with Don Potter here at Hamilton College, uh, that also drew me to the topic. And I've written other books, but th- those are the two most relevant. I will put the links to the books in the description. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you, sir. Thank you for your time. You are a you are a walking encyclopedia of the Tenth Mountain Division. You your ability to to just go off on facts is astounding. So, man, it's a pleasure being here. Well, thank you so much, Doctor Morris Isserman author of the Winter Army about the 10th Mountain Division. I will put it in the description on Audible. You don't even have to sit down and read it. You can just listen to it like me. It's a fantastic listen. Great narrator. It's fascinating. And again, it's just another, you're removing another layer of dust, of historical dust on the sacrifice that millions and millions of men made for us to have the freedom to sit here and talk about whatever we'd like. So thank you, sir. And um, I'll email you when this is up and I'd love to have you back on sometime. Okay, thanks, Tommy. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Stay safe, everybody. God bless America.